I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. You're going to think I'm crazy. I'm not supposed to broach the subject that I'm broaching tonight. It's too early in the series of meetings. But what I'm doing is following step by step through the sanctuary. And so we've come from the tents out there, which represent the world we've crossed a great gulf fix because of the estrangement between God and, and the fallen people. We've come to the gate of the sanctuary and we've met there, we were met there by a, a priest who brought us to the altar of sacrifice which represents the cross. Well, right after that is the labor and that's what we're going to talk about even though in, in a little series like this it wouldn't be conducive, I think, to talk about that next, but I'm going to do it anyway. Now, you've noticed the title um, this evening, Buried, Dead or Alive. Which would you rather? Dead? Uh-huh, that's right. You know, there was a time, and I'm sure you know this, there was a time when there was no embalming. You remember? Well, you don't remember probably because it never was in our time. But there was a time when there was no embalming. And there was the risk, of course, when people died, that they were not altogether dead always. And so it happened in uh, the early 17th century, so that's probably 16-whatever, 1625, 1610, 1615, whatever it might be. There was a lady, Marjorie Ethelstone, Eff who died. She was buried in, in Arton Tani's Scotland. Now, grave robbers in those days were uh, maybe more active than they are today, I assume so. I think so. In any case, there were grave robbers and they decided that this lady was wealthy enough and she was buried with enough jewelry that it was worth digging her up and getting the jewelry that she was wearing in her casket. The only problem is she wasn't about to let it happen, even though she was dead and buried. Well, she was supposed to be dead <laughs> and she was buried down there in, so they dug her up and as they began to work on her trying to get the jewelry off of her, off of her body, she began to groan and moan and she scared the living daylights out of them. And so they ran like scared rabbits, apparently. Well anyway, she revived and walked home and I would like to have been there to watch her husband's face when she came through the door. Don't you? Wouldn't it have been a blessing? Apparently she lived, she outlived her husband by six years. Now, it, maybe he got a heart attack the day he came in through the door and she lived six more years. But it doesn't say that in the story, so I really can't tell what happened. That was Marjorie somebody. Well, another Marjorie, Marjorie Halcrow Erskine of, of Chernside, Scotland. Now, I don't know if all these things always happened in Scotland and it only happened to Marjorie's, but, you know, that's what I've got right here. She died in 1674 and it happened in the 16th, 17th century also. She was buried in a shallow grave because the sexton, the sexton is just a fancy name for a grave digger, by the way. Anyway, the sexton decided that he wouldn't bury her too deep because he intended to rob her of her jewelry also. It was an occupation in those days, it seems like. Well, anyways, he did. He dug her up and, and guess what? When he was trying to cut her finger off to get her ring, it hurt. <laughs> and she woke up apparently and she scared the living daylights out of him too. Uh, she went on to give birth to two more sons in her life and no one knows what happened to the sexton. But we can guess. Anyways, he probably shaved a few years off his life that night 
and I don't know if he gave up that profession or not. Again, in the 16th century, the body of Matthew Wall was being borne to his grave, and one of the pallbearers tripped and fell, and the casket dumped on the ground, and the jolt jolted him back to life, and he lived several more years. And oh, here's the, 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 the punchline, he celebrated his resurrection every year thereafter. Now, most of us celebrate our birthdays, but I tell you what, if I come back from the dead, I will not celebrate my birthday, I will celebrate my resurrection. If it happens. Yeah. Have you ever wondered what it must have been like to wake up in a coffin six feet underground? I mean, wouldn't that be one of the scariest thoughts? I've I've grown up with thoughts like this all my life, and and all my life I can just just imagine myself in a coffin, and they've buried you. There's six six feet of dirt over you, and there's no way to get out of this thing. And I know that they pulled... I mean, they, they exhumed people and they've seen scratch marks on the lid of the coffin and thing, things all torn up in there and, and the look on the people's faces is horrible and all of the, all of this stuff. It's imagine, it's amazing and it's just not imaginable. The feeling. What do you think people are thinking if they wake up in a situation like that? What do you think people are saying? I mean, are they saying anything? Would you be saying anything? <laughs> I've had you turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at verses 34 and 37 in Matthew chapter 12. This is page 860, by the way, and I promise to give the page number. If I forget, you just raise your hands and let me know, because there may be someone that is not familiar with the scriptures here. Okay, Matthew 12, 34, 37. Jesus is speaking, and he says, brood of vipers. Boy, that's strong language. Root of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say unto you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, if you happen to be in a grave, buried prematurely, and you're alive in your coffin, what kind of words would come out of your mouth? (laughs) Well, the words that come out of your mouth will prove whether you were truly justified, whether you were truly converted or not, or whether your words will condemn you. And I can't tell from here, of course, what... I would be saying down there. Can you imagine? I can't. Yeah. Do you know that spiritually speaking, many people are buried alive? No, that's true. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start a few verses. This is page 1003, Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start a few verses above the verse we really want to look at to get a little bit of context. We're in Romans chapter 5. We're looking at verse 19 in Romans chapter 5. This is very interesting material. Um, Whatever you're studying, verse 19. For as by one man disobedience, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who is the one man who disobeyed that made so many sinners? Adam. How many did he make? All. All. 
I don't know why the Bible says he made many disobedient. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isn't that right? And where does it come from? From one man. Okay. So also by one man. Who is this? Jesus. Obedience. By one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. How many? Well, as many as received the gift of eternal life. As many as received him. That's right. Now I want you to notice in the verse... It uses the word made. By one man, many were made one way. By the other man, many were made the other way. That doesn't say that many were accounted sinners and many were accounted righteous. As a matter of fact, it says by one man, many were made righteous. And that means they were not righteous before and now they are righteous. It's possible, if we said it this way, a poor man made rich is no longer poor, right? Well, a Uh, An unrighteous man made righteous is actually righteous. And I'm not sure that all Christians think in those terms. We would like to to think that Jesus went to the cross with all of our sins, paid the penalty for all of our sins, forgave us all of our sins, and on the books of heaven is written, accounted righteous besides our name. Well, that's wonderful. I'd like to have the words accounted righteous beside my name. But I want something more than that. I would like to be actually made righteous, wouldn't you? Do you think that this is a possibility? Well, friends, it's got to be more than a possibility. The human race were created perfect. They were created holy. They were created whole. We fell. And the essence, the whole essence of the gospel is restoration. To bring the human race back from where they are fallen. This is God's plan for us. And if we have this in our minds, then we know how to cooperate with God. This is how we cooperate with God. This is where we want to go with God. And so when the Bible says many were made sinners, we know many were made sinners because I was made a sinner. And I'm a sinner in reality. Yes. But the other man, Jesus Christ, the righteous, by him, many were made righteous in reality. And that's what I want. I want it to be a reality in my life and the direction of my life is going in that way. That's where I want to go. That's where I want to go. I hope it's the same with you. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Praise God, there's more grace than there is sin. There's more power in grace than there is in sin. And you might find yourself influenced by sin and sometimes you can't say no to yourself, but there is a God in heaven that promises that he has more power and that he could put it in your heart so that you will want not to sin more than you will want to sin. And little by little, this is going to arrive in your heart and in your life. This is what we want. Verse 20, verse 21. To me, that's good news. So that as sin reigned in death, sin had control in the people who are dead in sin and trespasses, even so grace might also have taken control through Righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the good news. That's wonderful. In chapter 6, verse 1, a question is asked. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? No way. That's the answer, by the way, in colloquial language. Certainly not. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? I have another question. Do dead people sin? 
No. Unless they're buried alive. <laughs> no, really? Yeah. If a sinner is buried alive and he finds himself buried alive, I'll tell you what, you can wonder what's going to come out of his mouth. That's right. No. That's, we need to be born again. That's what we need. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we will never sin or fall or falter. That happens to people. And we read a verse yesterday that if we happen to fall or falter, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. We have a lamb that's willing to fight a dragon. That's what we saw yesterday. On our behalf. Yes. There is hope for us. And we will grow stronger and stronger and stronger, more and more spiritual as we go. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, whence we are dead to sin and trespasses, when we are dead to this world, when we are dead in this life, to the attractions of the world, we will really, really want to do right. Is that in your heart? Okay, we're getting close to what I really want to talk about. We're in Romans 6, verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in Christ Jesus, by the way, look at the word into now, as many as those as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, I'm interested in that word into. Do you know what the word baptism means? Many of you do, I assume. If you go to the Greek, it's the word baptizo, and it means immerse or submerge or buried into. Now, notice here that when we look at the, the, the idea of baptism, we're being baptized into water. Well, yes, but that's just a symbol. We're actually being baptized, we're being immersed, we're being submerged, we're being buried in Christ until we are surrounded by Christ and permeated by Christ. Isn't that a beautiful uh, allergy? Uh, I don't know. Allegory. Allergy. Whatever. It's an allergy. <laughs> Maybe it's an allergy. <laughs> yeah. I would like to be surrounded by Jesus. I would like to be permeated. I would like to be filled with His Spirit. And that's what we're getting close now because we're talking about the point of baptism here. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. Into death. Notice. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is here talking about being in Christ. Being baptized into Christ. And when we are baptized into Christ, when Jesus came to this world, He actually took the human race in Himself. He went to the cross of Calvary with the human race in Himself. When He died, we should have died with Him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he raised, when he rose from the dead, we raised the newness of life with him. He's resurrected and glorified, and we may live a new life. This is what all this is supposed to be teaching. Now listen, there's a wonderful symbolism here, and and that is what the rite or the sacrament or the ceremony of baptism is. It's a symbol. Baptism is a public demonstration, a public witness of an inner experience. Do you have an inner experience? Can you imagine? Well, you can imagine. Because there are a lot of people who look at baptism simply as a ritual. We belong to the church and that's what the church does and there's all kinds of sacraments or there's all kinds of rituals and ceremonies and we go through this, the, the ceremonies and, and the sacraments and whatever it is we do because we do it ritualistically, we do it ceremoniously, that's what we're supposed to do and we do it and 
sometimes there is not a relationship directly with God, personal with God, in the person. That's a tragedy. It really, really is. Do you have an inner experience with God? You know, I started, I started studying the Bible when I was 25 years old. It didn't take very long where I understood that there was a God in heaven. And that He loved me. And that He had a plan for my life and that He had a plan to save me from my sin. And He had a plan. He had a plan. And I, I appreciated it and I began to commune with Him one on one. Well, I came to the place where baptism was going to be a witness of an experience that I already had. And that's what we see here in the sanctuary. The man is coming from the world. That's the world up there. He makes his way with the Lamb of God through a great gulf fixed, by the way. He comes to the door and he's met there by the priest who represents Jesus Christ. He makes his way to the cross and at the cross, his own hand destroys the Son of God because our sins destroyed the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. And you can't have this experience and not have it touch your heart. Can you? No. That's what we need. We need to be walking with the Lamb of God every step of the way. And it's a relationship between Him and me. And you fall in love with a Savior like that. You really, really do. Baptism signifies dying to sin, dying to the world, dying to self. Putting aside what used to be important to you and taking on a whole new realm. It was amazing in my personal life. I mean, I grew up in a normal, a normal American life, even though I was in Canada. It's a Canadian life, but it's the same thing. It was exactly the same. And, you know, I quit school when I was 16. I went to work in the logging industry for a couple of years. Then I was in the mining industry for, for nearly 10 years. And I had a girlfriend, which became my wife, and I had a hot rod, and another one, and another one, and another one. <laughs> it's just the way, the way it goes. And my whole life was just party and smoking and drinking and dancing and, and we enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah. But one day, I don't know why, God reached into my soul and began to put there a desire for spiritual things and to read the Bible. I had never read the Bible and I wanted to know. So I picked up a Bible, decided to read it from cover to cover just to see if it was really what it claimed to be. God was leading and my soul was softening and softening and there came a day when I rejected all of this and took in all of this instead. And I lost all my friends and my family wouldn't talk to me for a whole year and on and on as you know as how it goes because that's the way, that's the way it is. But there's a lot of people who go through all that only ritualistically. They don't give up this. They don't really accept this either. It's just a ritual. And that's what we're trying to avoid because if you only do it ritualistically, you, in baptism, are being buried alive. That's what it is. So let's go to our sanctuary model and let's just review the whole thing again. I, you know, I keep saying it and I'm not supposed to. <laughs> um, no man-made religion, no ritual, no hocus-pocus, no keeping of all the commandments can affect a reconciliation. Buddha can't do it, and the Muslims, Muhammad can't do it, and Confucius can't do it, and Krishna can't do it. Man himself cannot do anything to do it. As a matter of fact, we can read it right here in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way. Is there any other way? No. Jesus is the way. 
No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the ticket to heaven. Jesus is our only way. As a matter of fact, do you know that from the moment the man up there in the world, from the moment that he decides he would like to be rid of sin in his life, he would like to be closer to God, he would like to be forgiven for his sins, the moment he decides that, there is a lamb not too far away. And do you know that the lamb stays with him all the way? All the way. Oh yeah, when he's crossing that, that space there between the tents and, and the sanctuary, the lamb is with him, otherwise he can't step into that space. Yeah, and when he comes to the door, the lamb is with him, and the priest represents Jesus, and they cross and they go to, to the altar of sacrifice, and it's his hand that kills the lamb. And then even as he goes on through the, the plan of salvation, through the sanctuary, even after the lamb is dead, the blood follows him in there, and it's the merit that's in the blood of Jesus Christ that gives him the efficacy, the efficiency, and everything else that he needs to go on and on and on through the plan of salvation. From the beginning to the end, the Lamb is with you. That ought to say something to people, don't you think? Oh yeah, religion is not just rote. It's not just ritual. We're not just doing things because that's what our church says we need to do. No, no, we're walking with Jesus. That's what we're doing. The sinner is forgiven, he's set free, and the Lamb pays the full price. And the goodness of God ought to break our hearts, don't you think? And so, after the cross, the altar of sacrifice right there, the next article of furniture, as we move towards the sanctuary, is called a labor. The labor represents cleansing, of course. The labor represents baptism. It also represents commitment. Death, death to self, a new life in Christ, and a new commitment to serve to serve God. Do you know what a commitment is? Do you know why we should make a commitment? I was listening to the radio some time ago, and there was a pastor preaching on the radio, and he was telling of a young couple that approached him and said that they wanted to be married, and they were hoping that he would agree to counsel them uh, for their marriage. And so he did that, Then one day the young man came to the pastor and said, you know, I have a request to make of you. Uh, can I ask a request of you? And he said, well, surely you can ask anything you want of me. Well, he said, can you omit the word commitment in the ceremony when, when we get married? And the pastor thought, well, why in the world would you want to do that? Well, he says, my girlfriend and I have been talking about it, and we would like to try out being married, but if it doesn't work out, we don't want to be bound by a pledge, you understand, to keep this up. So what do you think the pastor said? Like, no way, man. <laughs> right? He said, you'd be setting yourself up to fail. You would already be giving you, yourself the first excuse to make it not happen. The first time that something, something goes wrong, the first fight you have, the first time you have an obstacle in your marriage, anytime something goes wrong, you are going to say, well, it didn't work anyway, and they're going to leave it alone and, and quit and go the other way. Yeah. What do you think? I read in the internet this, this quote. The most important single factor in individual success. Would you like to succeed? How many people would rather fail? Now there's many aspects to life, you understand. 
I mean, we do have a religious life, and that's what we're talking about in this room, but there's a business life, and there's a family life, and there's physical life, and there's, you know, and there's all kinds of aspects to life. And how many aspects would you like to fail? And this quotation covers all the aspects, by the way. The most important single factor in individual success in any line, okay, is commitment. Is commitment. I read that on the internet. And you know it makes absolute perfect sense. Why? Because without commitment, your resolve, your resistance, your persistence, your drive, your determination is undermined. There will be obstacles in your life. There will be difficulties. There will be backsets. And do you know the only person that does not succeed is the person that quits, the person that gets discouraged, the, the person that comes to an obstacle and decides to can't do it, can't do it. Well, friends, it doesn't work that way at all. There is a God in heaven. And if he gives you a purpose and he gives, you know, he wants you to be healthy, he'll work it out. Don't quit. <laughs> learn what you can learn, what we learned earlier from Walter Cross. And go forward, go forward in every aspect of life. When my wife went to Africa, um, that was nine years ago. She went over there because we had been in Africa ten years and and we we were getting calls telling us there were 28,000 orphans in the Makete district in Tanzania and there was nobody helping them and, my, and we're saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can there be 28,000 orphans and nobody's helping them? And so we went over there to investigate and it was absolutely so. When we went from school to school, 35 to 50% of the kids were orphans from AIDS, you understand. People were dying of AIDS. When my wife was there the first few years, every day, every day, they would blow a trumpet in the in the village, every time somebody died, well, you can get any sleep because they were blowing the trumpet all the time, all the time. Eventually, America sent some prolonged life medicine over there, and things have settled down quite a bit. When she went there the first time, there was about 800 orphans in the little catchment she had there, about seven villages. Now they're down to about 500 because of this medicine, and of course the orphans are growing older, and we don't consider them orphans after a certain age, I suppose. Well, when she went to Africa... Every roadblock you could think of was thrown in front of her. There was no end to it. You know, we have an institution in Tanzania. She went to the institution. She says, I can't come here and become an NGO unless I'm sponsored by an NGO already. And we already have. And my son works at the other institution. And they said, no, what if, you know, you might start something and then you're just going to give it up a year or two and then we're stuck with this thing and we don't want to do it. So she went to the church as a whole and they said, oh, sure, sure, we'd like to do it. Then she went to Adra and they said, yes, yes, we'll, we want to do it. And then when it came time to sign the papers, nobody would do it. Yeah. And it took years and years. She would come home to Eden Valley and she'd give us a report on all that she was doing and it was fantastic. And she would say, she would tell us about all the obstacles that she was facing. And do you know what she would say? Paper dragons. Lions without teeth. I'm going forward because the Lord wants me to do this and he's going to give it to me. Do you know that the only person that fails is the person that quits? There was a lot, plenty of reason to quit. Plenty of reason to quit many times, but she would not quit. Take that in your own personal life, whatever goal you might have in life, don't quit. If it's worthy, of course, not quitting. And the greatest goal of all is to find our way to the kingdom of heaven and to bring somebody with us. Isn't it? Oh, yeah. Today, some Russian hydroelectric company 
is in those villages where my wife is, and they've just announced to her they're taking her property to build a dam, and they're going to have her property underwater. They said it was going to take four or five years, but she better get ready, whatever. And we prayed about it, we thought about it, and she's decided, no, God is going to do something. And so she put in her own hydroelectric, she put in two hydroelectric plants just a couple of weeks ago. She has, for the first time in nine years, she has electricity, hot water, and everything is great, except we still have this thing hanging over our heads. Are we going to quit? We're not going to quit. We're going to pray like mad, and the Lord is going to do what he does. You know, we can't determine what God will do. In a spouse, how valuable is wealth and power and education and talent and intelligence and good looks if the spouse is not faithful to you? If the spouse is not committed to you? How good is it? Ah, let me marry a poor girl that loves me. You know, never mind all the rest. Yeah. Some people don't know what a commitment is. Some people won't commit to anything. In 1976, that was this was at the height of the hippie movement. I, I some of you might remember. I was running a health food store in a city called Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, that's just across the border from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And this place was kind of a center for hippie movement. You know, it was beautiful, lots of parks and lots. And so there was lots of young people, and they used to shop at this health food store which I ran. And I had the opportunity there to tell them about Jesus. Every day, every day. They would come. They would come many at a time. And sometimes they would be riveted by what I was telling them. But there was one thing I was never able to get them to do. And that was to make a commitment. Because that's what it means to be a hippie, by the way. They were free. They were free from commitment. They were free from responsibility. They were free from accountability. They were free to have sex, to smoke pot. And they were free to dance around naked if that's what they wanted to do. That's what it meant to be a hippie in those days. Everything was free and there is no responsibility. There was a young couple there. Her name was Chris. Kind of a skinny little outfit. And not so pretty, but she had a lot of sex appeal somehow. And and the boy she was living with, his name was Ed. And he was a big burly guy with a big black beard. And he was a mechanic. Well, anyways, the idea was between them, the arrangement was between them, that they would live together until something better came along. So that's the hippie thing, you see. And that's how it was. Well, then in any case, I finally left this place. I, I did make my way to British Columbia for a while and then to Africa for a while. And after I did in Africa for about three years, I came back because my brother-in-law owned the health food store by this time. And so I went to visit him and his wife and his family and I said to, to Nelson, my brother-in-law, I said, uh, you know, there was a little couple that I used to have a lot to do with in the health food store. His name is Ed and her name is Chris. Do you know anything? Oh, sure, he says. They're living in Toronto now. She's a nurse. But, you know, as a nurse, she's a traveling nurse now. So really, she's in Texas and he's in Toronto. Well, I said, how does that work? I mean, they're just young, young couple. Oh, he says, you know, that's the arrangement. They're just going to do what they want to do. Um, and that was that was the end of the story at that point. Well, I came back another three years later, and again uh, visiting with my brother-in-law, I asked the the same question: What about Chris and Ed? How are they doing? Well, another man came along, and Chris went with him. Ah, but that was the arrangement, <laughs> and Ed had nothing to say about it because there was no 
committed. Jesus committed to save the human race. That's why he came to this world, you understand. You would think as God that he knew fully what he was facing. But he became a man. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. This is page 899. Page 899. This is the book of Mark and it's chapter 14. You would think as God he knew exactly what he was facing because he's God. But as a man... We're told right here in Mark chapter 14, if you look at verse um, 40, 30, 33, <clears throat> verse 33, that he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Now, I'm not used to this Bible. My Bible is the King James Version, and it doesn't say that he was troubled and distressed in the King James Version. It says that he was sore amazed. Now, you wouldn't think you could catch Jesus to the point where he would be amazed. But you see, as a man, he came and took the sin of the whole world upon himself, and he had never experienced this before, and so now he's walking with his disciples towards the Garden of Gethsemane, and the sins of the world are being put on his shoulder, and they're beginning, the sins are beginning to crush the life out of him. As a matter of fact, I think it says that in the next verse, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And by the word, this is just not a saying, he's just not talking. Talking for talking's sake here. When he said that he was exceeding sorrowful to death, that's exactly what he meant. He was actually losing his life at the moment. His life was being crushed out of him. And so he said to them, stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father. Now that's two names for his father. Abba more or less means dad or daddy. And father, all things are possible for you. Now notice the argument. Here's a son. He's in deep trouble. The life is being crushed out of him. And he gets on his knees and he's talking to his father. And the argument he uses is the best argument you could ever use. God, you can do anything. Nothing is impossible to you. I'm in a situation here that is terrible. Please change the situation for me. Every time I read this verse, I see my son. Now, you have to know my son. He's really a gentle soul in, in a sense. But as a boy and growing up, he was so rugged. And he, I don't, he's broken nearly every bone in his body, whether falling off a horse, falling off a house, or in a car accident, or a motorcycle accident. He, he didn't never do anything carefully. He did everything at high speed and he, you know, he, he just went through it all head first. And I don't know how many times I've seen him all battered and broken and the words that would come out of his, of his mouth was, Dad. You know, and that's what I see here. I see Jesus reaching out to his father and saying, Dad, you can do anything. Nothing's impossible with you. This situation isn't Impossible. You can change it. <clears throat> well, if you keep on reading. <clears throat> Let's read again verse 35. He went a little farther, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36. And he said, Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. 
take this cup away from me. Please, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Let's try to dig a little deeper into this, if we can. <clears throat> How long were the Father and the Son together before this? Hmm? Forever. Yeah, yeah. How much love did they have between them for eternity? If love grows with the passing of time, and the passing of time is eternal, and you can't say it that way really because it doesn't make any sense. There is no time in eternity. But anyways, for the sake of human beings, we talk that way. <coughs> eternity. I, I, you know, I can't even explain it. And yet, they were together and they were in love and what they, what they experienced together was an affection that we can't describe. Can we describe it? For eternity, they had this affection bestowed one upon the other. Now, we can't even say that it grows with the passing of time because God is perfect and nothing grows with God. He's perfect from the beginning. And so, love was at its zenith at the very beginning and we can't say beginning because it's eternal. Anyway... All the time, the love between them was at a zenith. It was, it was amazing. That's what it, what would it take to break the bond between them? Well, you couldn't do it. You just couldn't do it. Now, well, with the passing of time, when there was no time, they began to create other wonderful beings everywhere, and they gave them the power of choice. With the power of choice came an inedible, an inevitable fall. There was war in heaven. And then the war transferred to this earth below, the great controversy, and Adam and Eve fell. And then Christ, and I think this, is, this decision was made before then, of course, Christ decided to commit to rescuing the human race. And finally, he ends up in Gethsemane. That's the verses we've just read. Do you know what was happening to Jesus at that point? Jesus was being asked to choose. That's what's happening. Jesus is being asked to choose between an eternity of affection bestowed and an eternity of affections received. He's asked to choose between that and something better? Something enticing? Something attractive? Something tempting? No! He's being asked to choose between an eternity of affection and the torture of separation from his Father and, and the cross and the tortures that he finds there. What kind of a choice is that? If you had the choice between something really good and something really bad, there's no choice, right? But it was a choice for Jesus. It was a choice for Jesus. He was being asked to choose between an eternity of love and torture. Can I illustrate it? I'm trying to illustrate it. When Eve handed the fruit to Adam, Eve had been deceived. Adam understood what was going on. This put Adam in a stranger situation than it did Eve, by the way. Adam had to choose now. It was a choice between the one he loved with an all-consuming passion and God, doing right by God. Who did he choose? Eve. Why did he choose Eve? Well, in my mind, and I can't read it to you, in my mind, I can see it very easily that Adam had bestowed more affection upon Eve than he had bestowed upon God. After all, God was a father figure. God was a lawgiver. 
God was the creator, he was over there somewhere, while Eve was in his arms, warm and soft and his lover. And when there was a choice between Eve and God, what really happened was there the weight fell on the side of Eve because he had bestowed more affection there than he had bestowed upon God. Well, friends, what are we going to do? When, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or Adam in the arms of Eve, when we're asked, to choose for God when our heart's affections have been centered on the world and on our wealth and on our careers and on our properties and on sports and on fun and on families and on possessions and on and on and on. I mean, where are you bestowing your affections today? Where are you bestowing your affections? On what are you bestowing your affections? Do you know that if you bestow more affections on the things of this world, that when it comes to the time that you and I have to make a choice, we are going to be strapped on that day. We will want to go to heaven, but we won't be able to leave that upon which we've bestowed our affections. What happened to Mrs. Lot? Do you remember Lot's wife? What happened to her? Do you know that an angel came down? God had determined that he would rain fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah because everything had gone bad there. There was hardly anyone left that was righteous except Lot. An angel comes down and grabs Lot by the hand and misses Lot by the hand and he walks them out of the city and he didn't get really far and he said to them, don't look back. If you look back, you're toast. I don't know if he said that, but that's the gist of it. You know, why did Mrs. Lot look back? The angel told her not to look back. Why did she look back? Because, friends, everything upon which she has bestowed her affections were there. She hadn't bestowed her affections forward to God. She had a family back there. She had grandchildren back there. She had a house back there. She had a garden back there. She had her, her friends back there. Everything upon which, everything she lived for was back there. And even though the angel said, don't look back, it was, who are you? Everything I have is over there. You can't, you know, take my pipe from me. But she didn't have a pipe. Yeah, yeah. Where are we going to get the power to deny ourselves, our affection, in that day? You know, we're told that every earthly support will be cut off. There's coming a time when there's going to be a huge war between the beast who says you're going to worship me or else and the God in heaven that says, no, you're going to worship me or else. And we're going to have to make a decision and do you know that you will make a decision based on where you bestowed your affection? Does it make any sense to you? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and that isn't in our notes, and it's not going to be on the screen here. So it's Colossians chapter 3, it's page 1047. And I wish I had the King James, well, I can recite it, actually. I'm going to read it from the, this new King James here. Colossians chapter 3, we're looking at verses 2 to 4. I like the King James better. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Set your mind. That's good. But the King James says, set your affections. Set your affections on things above and not on the things of the earth. And now we know why. Because we're going to be asked to make a decision between one or the other. And we're going to choose. Don't say, oh, in that day, hey, I'll give all that up and I'll go to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. It's amazing. 
Um, when Christ, who is our life, appears, that's the second coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, and passions and evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Yeah, so let's do it. Let's begin right now. You know, it doesn't happen in a moment. And if you don't know it, we're living at the last days. And I hope by the time we're finished this little series, we're going to delve in deeper into prophecy after we've walked through the sanctuary. Because this is the basis of the Christian experience, by the way. Once we get past this, well, actually, once we get into the most holy place of the sanctuary, do you know this wall here divides history? And we're going to study that. Once we get past this wall, we're into the last days. And what Jesus has expects of his people in the last days is something more than he's expected of his people up until then. And that's an interesting study. And if we have an opportunity, we're going to study about the mark of the beast and all of these things. I don't know how far we're going to get because I just don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Are you willing to commit? I've seen many people get baptized without making any commitment. They expect it to go down in the grave. Have you ever seen, have you ever baptized people? Well, you probably haven't baptized people. The pastors have in here. Yeah. And they're so excited because they're being baptized. And they have an expectation in their heads that when they are baptized, when they get back up, everything will be different. All their sins will be gone. All their their desires will be changed. Everything will be perfect. And do you know a lot of people are disappointed because it doesn't happen this way? Do you know why it doesn't happen that way? Now, it can happen that way. I'm not saying it doesn't always but the reason it doesn't happen that way is because baptism is only a symbolism. And the people went down before they were born again. And do you think they'll be born again when they come back up? All I'm saying is, if we baptize the devil, all we would have is a wet devil when he came back up. That's how it would be. Some people are like that too. They are full of devils when they go in and they're full of devils when they come out. And they're disappointed with the whole experience because they don't understand that we need to have an experience with God before baptism. We do. They're buried alive. They never died to sin. They never wanted to leave the world behind. They made no commitment to God. They were following a ritual. Ah, friends. I know. It's too early in a series of meetings to call people to baptism. I know. So we're going to revisit this topic we're going to revisit it somewhere down down the road. But do you know, there's no point to the rest of our salvation, to the rest of the story, to the rest of the steps to salvation, unless we come to that point of making a commitment. Because without commitment, the rest won't stick. It just won't stick. And so we want to have that experience together. Jesus risked everything. Do you know? When he came down to this world, it was to die for our sins. And he was willing to risk an eternity of affection coming his way. He was willing to risk an eternity of of affection coming from him to his Father. And to lose the whole thing and to die an eternal death so that you and I can go to heaven. So that you and I can live eternally. Does that touch your heart at all? Ah, friends. Is it worth making a commitment to a God like that? 
besides all the benefits, <laughs> how would you like to just die eternally? How would you like to miss out on an eternity of pleasure and bliss and love and education and seeing wonders we can't even imagine and just giving it all up because we can't give up our pipes. Now, you don't have any pipes, I understand. So, I I don't want to pick on your specific sin. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's nothing in this world worth having. Let me tell you. There is nothing in this world worth having except Jesus Christ and eternal life and bringing our loved ones with us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.